You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. I just apologize. I apologize uh, and had to back out of teaching tonight. I'm here at a family event come up um, that he had uh, not yet cleared with his wife. Um, but he was supposed to speak tonight and couldn't make it, so we're going to try to do that um, pairing of uh, presentation um, in the spring uh, with Matt and I, and uh, tonight I thought I totally would pivot, um, and we're going to talk about the law of God. But I want to begin by talking about first um, why we do this. Why do we do be a good man? What is this all about? And uh, it, it comes from a, a fundamental conviction that God has made you as a man to be a certain thing. Um, he's made you to be strong. He's made you to be wise. He's made you to exercise leadership and to rule. Um, he, he's made you to carry things that are heavy. Um, he's made you to open the jar of pickles. Um, he has made you um, in particular ways that are unique to masculinity. Um, one of the things that uh, has been said and has been said often um, as we think about the way that God has structured society, the way that um, the, the world has actually been made, um, is for the church to win the city, it must first win the men. Um, it must uh, uh, disciple men into being uh, faithful followers of Jesus who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, um, and are willing to lead in every arena in society, whether that's business or government, um, or in their home, um, in their marriages and with their kids, to, to lead faithfully as Christian men, unapologetically as Christian men, both of those words. And, uh, and so we actually believe that the, great, that the grace of God as it comes to us in the gospel does not destroy nature, it doesn't destroy the way that God's made you to be. Um, contrary to what a lot of evangelicalism has said to us um, over the last couple of decades, uh, that, that when the grace of God comes, um, when you encounter and have faith in Jesus and in the gospel, um, that, that all of those masculine traits, uh, those rough, hard edges, your ability to carry heavy things, um, are dissipated by the presence of the Spirit of God in your life, um, and we all become very nice, soft, happy people. That is the opposite of what actually think the Bible teaches. Um, the grace of God comes, reconciles us to God, and then actually empowers us to walk in righteousness, and empowers us to walk as men, um, uh, taking the, the ways that God has designed us and made us as men, um, and, and it, it actually, per, grace perfects nature rather than crushes nature. Um, it's kind of the old theological categories that are used to describe it. Um, that, that grace doesn't supersede nature, it doesn't overcome nature. Um, that God's actually made us in, in a particular way, and that way is good. Um, it's been twisted by sin, it's been misdirected by sin, it's been weakened by sin. And what grace does is actually um, reconciles us to God and redirects and straightens out the nature, the means, the, the, the way that God has made you to be um, as a man. And so we do these nights essentially to unapologetically uh, uh, try to cultivate a, um, a community of men in our church who are fully embracing all that God has called us to be, the vocations and the responsibilities um, that God has called us into, um, and to see healthy manhood, biblical manhood, Christian manhood um, exercised again in our homes, in our city, uh, in our neighborhoods, with our kids, and in our marriages. So that's why we're here, um, and tonight is tied specifically um, to how do we think about uh, the authority that God has given us in the varying spheres represented in this room. 
Um, and so all of you have some degree of authority. Some of you not very much authority. Um, some of you almost no authority yet, but we're training you for authority. Um, uh, but, but if you're married, God's given you authority in your home. God has structured marriage such that, such that the husband is the head of his wife. And that, that is the design, the definition of marriage. You can reject that. You can fight against that. And it simply won't change that. Um, a husband is the head of his wife. He is the covenant head of his home. Um, therefore, he bears responsibility for leading his home. If you have children, um, you exercise leadership, a God-given authority uh, over your children. If you have a job, um, God's given you o- authority over, um, at the very least, yourself and the tasks you've been given to do. Um, if you manage people, if you lead people, if you're the boss of anybody, if anybody answers to you in your workplace, um, you've been given authority. And so what I'm going to talk tonight is... is um, how do we understand the, the, the rails that should guide that authority? Um, whether you're talking about your company, um, or you're talking about your marriage, or you're talking about raising children, um, where, how do you know, hey, am I doing a good job or am I doing a bad job with regards to how I'm answering to um, the authority that God has placed over me? So that's the goal tonight. Um, and all of that means is we're going to talk tonight about the law of God and the place of the law of God in the life of of a Christian. Um, so tonight, um, essentially I want to start with some kind of misunderstandings, misapplications, um, I would say wrong thinking that has kind of worked its way into um, Christians and in our, in our understanding of the law and how to apply the law and how to think about the law. Um, and that part will be, that part will be fun. And then the second part, we're going to get into the weeds um, and we're going to use this piece of paper. It's beautiful, well-designed, graphically pleasing handout, designed by a professional, um, and we're going to actually walk through some pretty heady theology um, to, to kind of give you at least a reformed understanding, historically reformed understanding of what the law is and how to read the law. Uh, my hope is that will be useful to you. Um, if, you're, if you're like me, you grew up in a church background that I'm deeply grateful for, I heard the gospel, I was taught the, the central importance of the Bible. But I was given no framework to have any idea what to do with the law of God. Um, and uh, it was applied unevenly. It was applied, uh, it was talked about in ways that I, I, it was never um, spelled out in, in such a way that it made sense to me. So my hope tonight is to at least give us a framework that's historic, it's old, it's, it's been in the church forever. Um, for when you go to the book of Exodus, when you go to the book of Leviticus, when you go to the book of Deuteronomy... Um, when you start reading things like Matthew 5 and 6, uh, when you see the commands and Paul's reapplication and reinterpretation of the law in his letters, um, how do we think about those commands and how do we understand them and apply them? So the second portion will be less fun, unless you're a theology nerd. And that part will be fun for you. And the last part, um, we're going to bulk of our time talking through some direct applications some principled application to you all as individual men um, and then to you as a husband and you as a father. And then we'll just spend some time talking, having some questions, bouncing around some, some thoughts that would kind of flow out from what we're talking about tonight. Somewhere in the middle there, we'll take a break and get whiskey and brownies. Sound good? All right. The brownies or the, the whole night? Okay, good. All right. Um, all right, let's pray. 
Father, I pray that you would um, honor now as we look at your word, as we seek to understand your word, as we seek to understand um, in, in kind of a, a, at least a framework sort of way, uh, how, how the world works, how it's been structured, how you've designed it. Um, so Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom, give us insight, help us to even be drawing other texts that we're not looking at tonight, um, to think clearly about these things. In your name we pray, amen. So I'm going to begin with one just fundamental principle uh, that runs the whole gamut of Scripture um, and uh, is, is universally and absolutely true. And I'd say it's a, a baseline principle for understanding anything else, I, I hope, anything else I would ever say in any context. Um, and that it is this, that, that all authority is under authority. And specifically, all authority is under God's authority. That there is no government, there is no business leader, there is no husband, there is no father, there is no judge, there is no president, there is no politician, there is no congressman um, whose authority ultimately does not come from and is answerable to God himself. It's a fundamental principle in scripture. God is the Lord of all things. He reigns over all things. He has all of authority over all things. So when you think about um, any politician out there, you, you need to know this. There will not be kind of a special, on Judgment Day, um, a special dispensation. There's like a special room that you could go into um, if you were an American politician because the separation of church and state, where you get to go in there and say, I don't have to deal with any of this judgment before God stuff because I was making these decisions and passing these laws um, or bringing these judgments, not, not on the basis of... Um, what God says, but on the basis of what I thought, you know, how a democratic society would vote. In the end, like the, the, the most baseline important principle that you can learn, um, really in all of life, is that all authority is answerable to God. God is king over everything. There is no religious realm over here over which God has authority, and then non-religious realms over here where God doesn't have authority. Everywhere is answerable to God. You as a husband have been given authority by God. You don't have authority apart from the authority that God has given to you as a husband, which means all of the authority that you exercise as a husband is answerable to, is accountable to God as king. Make sense? Fathers in this room, all the authority you have over your children, every single bit of it, has been given to you by God. It's not just yours kind of hanging out here to do with whatever you please. But actually it's given to you by God himself. And therefore, every act of discipline, every rule, every failure to discipline, every failure to demonstrate the love of God, all of it is ultimately accountable to and answerable to God. This is a fundamental principle, um, and it, it builds out into, I would just give us one direct implication before we even get to the end of the night, to say that everyone you know, particularly people that you have authority over, should know that you are under authority. Does that make sense? Your wife should know that you're not in charge out here on an island by yourself. You are accountable to God. 
Your children should know. You're not just dad with iron-fisted authority. You are accountable to God. If you run a business, everyone should know that you answer to a higher authority. Now, I don't know exactly how that looks given the particulars of the business that you run and the business that you're in, but they should know that there are principles, rules, laws given to you by someone else that you are absolutely accountable to even above your particular boss in that, in that workplace. You do answer to your boss, but you ultimately answer to someone else. Um, and, and one of the, the errors that I think has gone into our um, ways of thinking about the world is to think that God has to do with, he has authority with spiritual things, religious things, theological things. But he doesn't have a whole lot to say about political things or economic things or, um, or, or other arenas outside of a handful of moral issues. And ultimately just like how you read the Bible, how you pray, what you feel when you sing, and theological issues. Um, but Jesus claims at, at the end of Matthew's gospel, as he's ascending to the Father, all authority in heaven and in earth. It's a totalizing claim. It's frankly shocking. It was shocking to me growing up in a Southern Baptist church where God had primarily to do with religious things and not a whole lot to do with everyday things or political things um, or school things or practical things. To be confronted um, with the, the, the reality that the claim that Jesus makes um, does not kind of break out some sort of salvific heavenly realm out from his authority in other places. He has authority everywhere. And everyone should know that you live under that authority, particularly in the places where you have authority. Um, so that's the first kind of principle and kind of misconception I want to overcome. Um, second, when we approach God's law, I think there's often a misunderstanding or misreading of the law of God because we misunderstand God's mood. Right? So we hear him say things like, um, you, you should keep the Sabbath day holy. And we imagine him having a frown on his face as he says it. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Like he cusses at the end of it probably. Pounds his fist on the table. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Like you, we have this posture, this kind of view of God as he's giving these commands, the way that like um, some of us chastise or discipline our son um, when they get on to the electric piano in your living room and you're trying to watch a football game on a Saturday afternoon and they start pounding out the, the, the key of E. Not the key of E. It actually wasn't my son, frankly. It was Ryan's son um, last weekend. It was Louie. And I was trying to watch a game and Louie really wanted to play the piano unskillfully. Um, and so we, th we think of like, hey, me telling Louie, uh, maybe in an ear, I didn't use an irritated voice, don't worry. I was very kind, gentle. But we imagine what I felt in that moment was a mild irritation because of what was happening in Tennessee during the game and what was happening to the Navy during the game. Um, and, and God kind of yelling at us, like, turn the stinking piano off. And so I said, hey, we should turn the piano off. But, but we imagine like the tone of God um, as he gives us his law, as he gives us his commands um, to be a kind of uh, frustrated or 
irritated father. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Somebody read for me, starting in verse 8, um, down, to, down through verse 11. First uh, Timothy 1, 8 through 11. So um, here's the thing. We're not going to focus on the, the part there about the law yet. Um, we're going to get some of that. Um, but this verse 11 in particular. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Another way to translate that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the happy God. The, the reality is this God who gives us this law and this God who forgives our sins in Jesus Christ is blessed. He's ha- and, and not like hashtag blessed um, on vacation. He, he is a happy, joyous God. But when he gives to you the law concerning the Sabbath, he gives to you a gift. And he smiles as he gives it. But when he lays out for us the, the, um, the, the whole course of the law of God, he gives it to us with a smile on his face. He's filled with joy. Um, and, and, and I think that there has been this kind of common view of God, that God is, um, give, and perhaps it, it, it stems from our fathers, um, that when God gives us laws, when he gives us commands, he's doing so out of irritation. He's doing so because we're, 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 he's upset with us. He's angry with us. He wants to dominate us. But but the reality is is that God gives us his law as a kindness. He gives us his law as a gift. He gives us these commands um, because he loves us. And he is not mad at us and and therefore commanding us. Rather, he graciously delights in his people and gives to his people his commands and his law. Um, And and I think, again, I'm going to make small applications all the way through. But as fathers, like, is the tone of your rulemaking in your home, one of joy. Or are you irritated all the time? But when you establish like a framework or a culture or how you want your family to operate and function, maybe you're on the dinner table, or are you doing so like with a heavy hand, irritated, anxious, mad? Are you doing so as a man who's marked by joy, who who is seeking to find ways to bless his family and to bless his children? This isn't to say that there's not places for discipline, there's not places for heavy hand, 
But, but it is to say that the overall note that, that you should want your, your children and your wife to have when they look back on you and remember you is a man who was marked by happiness. Even in your discipline, you were marked by joy. Even in your rulemaking, it was marked by happiness and gladness and blessing. And so I, I, I would plead with you, in light of the nature and the character of God, does God get angry at sin? Yes. Um, are there times in Scripture that we find him wrathful and opposed to, to his enemies? Absolutely. Um, it is one of the, the most common responses in encountering the holiness of God, fear. Yes, but, but fear gives way to a God who delights, who sings over his people. And so I plead with you with all the authority you've been given, and particularly as you seek to exercise that authority um, in, in bringing laws to bear, rules to bear, um, on the life of your family, the life of your home, in your workplace. And I pray that it, it, it's, most, it's marked most deeply by dad's smile, his laughter, his happiness, his joy. Okay? Good. <clears throat> Third thing I want you to notice, which has direct relevance, right? You think about functioning as a father and a husband. The law is really short. I know you don't think that because you see all of everything in the Old Testament and you see all these commands and commands and commands and instructions about weird sores with hairs on them or not hairs on them and, um, and, and all of that stuff. Um, we're going to get into this in just a minute, but, but here's, what I, here's a basic understanding of the Reformed view, kind of historically Reformed view um, of the law of God, um, is that everything that you find in the law is essentially working out from Ten Commandments. Um, so when we get into, immediately after Exodus 20, you get into laws about slaves, you get into economic laws, you get into all kinds of different things. Um, uh, the, the way that that's been approached and understood is that um, these are judicial applications of, or particular societal applications of, extensions of the Ten Commandments, the law of God. So, so think about that for a second. Like, everything you need to understand morality, right and wrong, how a society should be governed. All of it, if you're really smart, is contained in the Ten Commandments. Everything you need for justice is contained in the Ten Commandments. Everything you need to know in order to understand how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Jesus summed up the first tablet of law, and how to love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus summed up the second tablet of law, all of it's contained in... Ten rules. Like, think about that for a second. Like, everything else we see getting worked out in the Old Testament law is an outworking of those Ten Commandments applied to a particular time, particular place, particular culture, particular society. Um, they, they lay out for us principles. How, how do we think about loving our neighbor? How do we think about all those kinds of things? Um, well, everything else in the law is working those questions out. Um, and so the way that the, the Ten Commandments were read, um, Jesus gives us a perfect example of it um, in Matthew 5. Flip over there with me. I had a pre-workout drink before I came here. So if anyone wants to do some push-ups. All right. Uh, somebody read for us 
Um, read for us, starting in Matthew 5, verse 17, um, down to verse 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to come. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going within the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what's Jesus doing here? What's he doing? Giving commentary on the law. Giving commentary on perfect. He's explaining the law. He's interpreting the law for us. He's helping us to understand and apply the law. Um, and one of the interesting background pieces to keep in mind throughout the Gospels, um, oftentimes we think of the Pharisees as these hyper-vigilant law keepers. Like they were the righteous of the righteous. In fact, they were so righteous in keeping the law that they missed Jesus. That's actually a, a complete misunderstanding of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very, very good at teaching the law. Um, they talked often about the law. In fact, Jesus says when you hear what the Pharisees are teaching, you should do what they say because they, they teach you uh, rightly from the law of Moses, but you should not do what they do. Um, and and one, of the, one of the historical realities around the Pharisees um, is, is that they were constantly finding loopholes, constantly creating loopholes um, such that you didn't have to keep the law. In fact, oftentimes Pharisees weren't legal maximalists, they were minimalists. So they were constantly trying to find ways of twisting the law, reinterpreting the law so that you didn't have to do the law. Jesus actually is doing the opposite. He's maximalizing the extent to which um, the law extends to even your thoughts and words. Um, and this is, frankly, like how we're to use and understand the law. The law, um, by, by, by listening to how the law is applied in the Old Testament, by listening to how Jesus reads the law and interprets the law, and by listening to Paul and his actual applications of, in light of the gospel, um, how do we think about the law, how do we think about love for, love for one another, love for neighbor, um, love for God, um, that's how we're to approach the law. But here's the, the kind of basic principle I want to get back to, and we're going to get more into the weeds on that stuff in a minute. But, but here's the basic principle. Like, is your house like overrun with legislation? As a dad. Like, is your house filled with like an enormous number of don'ts? No's. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't eat that. Like, like think about like the God of the universe created the world and and and, and literally like. He just needed 10 words. 
I mean, what the Ten Commandments are called. They're called the Ten Words. Like, he needed ten words to, to teach us how to live well and skillfully and righteously in it. There is, I think, something about that that we have to learn as fathers, as husbands, um, as those who, who and have workplaces. I think in a, a, like a minor workplace uh, uh, application would be to say, like, hey, is the, the overall spirit of the company that you work in, um, the, the people who work for you, is it generally one of freedom? Is it generally one of like, hey, here's the rails. Um, I want you to run as hard as you can within those rails. In your home, like... There needs to be clear morality, clear ethics, clear rules. Um, but, but if those rules are, over, are, are too much, if they're overburdening, like you're not imaging the, the authority that you're actually under. As you bear God's authority in your home, like, is your home marked by just kind of like a bunch of red tape? A bunch of no's? A bunch of severity? Or is it marked by joy and a great deal of freedom? I mean, James, um, he says uh, that we should look intently at the perfect law of liberty. Such a strange thing. It's such the opposite way um, that I was taught to think about the law of God. The law wasn't liberty. It was enslaving. It was condemning. It was destructive. Um, but but th- there's something that actually like, being, reconciled to God is, um, being reconciled to God does in terms that it redefines the nature of your relationship to the law of God. And one of the things that's shocking about the law is it, it's, it's such a freeing and liberating law. Um, one, especially when you're not, no longer condemned by that law, but you begin to realize like, um, the, the kind of world that God has designed is one marked by liberty, not by a whole, a whole overruled home. Um, and so that's the third thing that I think we, we, don't, we don't totally understand. Is we, we look at um, a whole list of commands and laws and weird details about is the wound on your flesh oozing or not oozing. If it is oozing, then you have to go live outside of the city. If there's a hair in it and the hair is white, then they have to burn down your house. But if it's not white, good news, we don't have to burn down your house. Um, we, we see all of that stuff and we think like, oh, the law of God is this massive, intricate, complex, and lengthy um, list of commands that, that, um, that, that we begin to think of God, one, as grumpy, and two, as he really likes to create random and weird rules, particularly seems obsessed with sores. Um, when you begin to actually understand how, um, how at least the history of the church has read the law of God, you understand he's not like that at all. And then you get to places like Psalm 119, um, where the psalmist goes on and on and on, saying, I love your law. Your law is sweet to me and beautiful to me and good to me. It's liberating to me. I remember I used to scratch my head when I read, read Psalm 119. Like, all I knew about the law was that it was condemning. Like, it made me aware of my sin. How could you ever come to a place where, the, um, where you would literally describe the law of God as being sweet as honey to your lips? Um, and, and that's the kind of authority you should exercise in your home and in your business place. Is your authority, when it's exercised, is it like honey? Is it comforting? Is it liberating to the people under your charge and under your authority? Or is it overbearing? Is it burdensome? So, um, I keep waiting for my son to say something like burdensome. <laughs> so, so that would be the third thing. And then the last piece 
uh, by way of, before we jump into this, this handout, um, and actually we'll take a few minutes to, to ask some questions, um, is you need to, for the law to be liberating, um, for the law to be sweet as honey, you need to know what the law is for and what the law is not for. Because if you misuse the law, it will be, the, it, it will be a burden that will absolutely crush you and destroy you. It'll unravel you. If you misuse the law, it will send you to hell. But if you use the law rightly, it will lead you into life and wisdom and, and joy. So, so this question, um, if, you, if you understand, if, if you don't, if like everything else I say tonight is boring, um, and you have one, like you just kind of are watching a basketball game on your phone, here's, please hear this. The law cannot save you. It cannot reconcile you to God. It cannot make you a just man or a righteous man. The law is incapable of reconciling you to God. It's an unclimbable ladder. And so if you seek to use the law as a ladder by which you climb up to and become worthy of the love of God, um, become worthy of um, the righteousness of God, be worthy of um, an eternity in heaven, an eternity um, in the presence of God, the law will crush you and destroy you. It was not designed to do that. It was never designed to do that. So what is the law not for? Salvation. It is not for salvation. Um, but what the law is for is what we're going to talk about next. The main thing you need to know is if you're using the law to try to accomplish your reconciliation with God, if you ever think to yourself, I've earned the love of God, I've earned the blessing of God, I've earned the kindness of God, um, surely I'm approved by God because of anything you have done, you're misusing the law and it will crush you. It will absolutely destroy you. This, in fact, was the problem with the Pharisees. The law was a means to force God's hand to bless Israel. Enough people keeping the law with enough rigor, or at least keeping the loopholes correctly, would lead to the blessing of God, would lead to the righteousness of God being exercised on behalf of the people of God. And Jesus comes and condemns that. So do not use the law that way. And let me just warn you, like, this is the tendency of all Christians. And, and the weird thing is, is we actually will depart from the actual law of God. We'll talk about this later. But we, and, and we'll cr start creating our own really, really weird laws. Like, really weird laws. I grew up in a church where it was a sin to, like, think about beer. Not to drink it, but to even think about it, that was a sin. So we create a whole list of rules and, and we add to the law of God, we add to the commands of God, um, and we begin to say, hey, if I keep these commands rigorously and perfectly, then God will love me, God will approve of me, God will forget about all the other bad stuff I did. That is a direct misuse of the law of God. And, and when you begin to carry the law like that, it will absolutely crush you. I actually believe that a lot of what's happening in terms of deconstruction um, in our current kind of cultural mood, um, it's kind of the rage, everyone's deconstructing, um, departing from Christianity. I think a large portion of it arises from people who um, never understood, never embraced, were never captured by the grace of God, 
and the mercy of God. And they thought all of this religiosity, all of this showing up at church, all of these opinions about sexuality, all these teachings about these things um, were simply laws or commands or good works that they needed to do in order to earn God's favor. And now they're just rejecting all of it. The only means by which you can be saved is the grace and the mercy of God to forgive your sins. If you put all of your hope and your trust in Jesus and his death on the cross in your place, his resurrection and his lordship over all things, this is the only means to be made right with God, to be made right with God. And frankly, it is the, it is the non-negotiable prerequisite for the law to be used um, in a life-giving way in your life and in your home. And so fathers, I would plead with you, may your children know that your love is not contingent on their behavior. May they know that one of your favorite things in the world to do is to forgive their sins. To forgive when they disobey you. When they disappoint you. you. You have to have moral standards. You have to have rules. And you should make sure you don't have too many of them. But, but they will be broken. They will be violated. You will be lied to. Um, they will take and sneak the extra cookie. Um, which maybe that means that shouldn't be a rule. Um, <clears throat> whatever the thing may be, it will happen. And may your sons and your daughters know... If I confess this to my dad, he will smile and hug me and say, I forgive you. And that you'll do it without batting an eye. This is what God is like. And it's the only way that the law can actually become a law of liberty. Particularly when it's in your own soul, but also when it's applied in your home or in your workplace. If you're a boss, there comes a time with certain people that you can't, like, you can't trust them to do the job that they're supposed to do. But they should know that you care for them, that you love them, and that you forgive them. Does that make sense? Good. Um, let's take a five-minute break, and then we'll come back and jump into this. Mostly because my voice needs a five-minute break. So grab brownies, grab whiskey. There's a lot more beer. All right, let's get back to it. All right, so if that's what, what the law is not for, if the law of God is not to be used as a mechanism for your justification, the law of God is not to be used um, as a thing by which you uh, are made right with God. If it's meant to be used for something else, um, what is the law actually for? Um, and then where we'll end is, and what in the world does any of that have to do with um, how I lead my family as I exercise my vocation um, as a man? Um, as a husband, as a father, um, what, do I, what, what do I do with all this? So that's where we're going to end. Um, and I want to I run through this, uh, this weird nine-circled um, thing here in front of you and, uh, and talk about it. So, um, historically, there have been three uses of the law. Um, and different traditions has, have emphasized uh, different, different mechanisms. And, and I, would, I, I would say that, say, the Lutherans have emphasized the first use of the law uh, above everything else. Um, in fact, so loudly that it's kind of drowned out all the other uses of the law. Um, the Reformed tradition, kind of coming out of Calvin, uh, has emphasized uh, all three uses of the law, and um, particularly the third 
use of the law. So let's talk about the three uses of the law. First, um, the law is there to show us our need for Christ. To show us that we are sinners in need of reconciliation, in need of forgiveness, in need of salvation. Um, and so when you, when you are confronted with the law of God, when a non-Christian is confronted with the law of God, um, when they're confronted with objective morality, um, what they see is something deeply offensive to them. Um, it is deeply offensive to our flesh. Unrenewed, unrestored flesh. We see the law of God and what we see is our condemnation. What we see is what makes us guilty before God. What we see is I can't make myself right with God. So this is the first use of the law. It is, um, uh, it is a hound that drives us to Jesus and to recognize that our only hope for reconciliation with a God who is this holy, in other words, our sinfulness, our um, violation of his law, his commands, is such that we must be saved by his mercy. So the first use of the law is to confront um, us with our sin and our need for Jesus. And this, um, fundamentally, it, it, it can't be short-circuited. This is how conversion and salvation happens. People come to terms with the reality of, I need Christ. I need to be reconciled to God. I must have my sins forgiven. My only hope before the God who created this universe is that he would forgive my sins and that he would do so on the basis of the work of Jesus. And there are all kinds of kind of reformattings of the gospel that have taken place over the last 30 or 40 years, particularly within American evangelicalism, which tries to get around that. It tries to portray Jesus merely as the desirable end that everyone wants anyway. Because we live in a society that um, the claim that there is an objective morality, there's objective right and wrong, um, that, that certain things are an abomination to God, he hates them. To say that about anything, to, to say that about the things that the Bible says it about, homosexuality, To say those things um, is utterly, it, it is the heresy of our day. But the reality is that the Bible confronts us with those things, not because God is mean, but because he confronts us with, with those kinds of things which are in the law of God. For us to reconcile, I must be saved. I cannot save myself. And there is no coming to Jesus. There is no regeneration. There is no new birth. There is no salvation apart from repentance from sin. And the only thing that leads to repentance from sin is the specific application of the law to specific sins. So popularly within evangelicalism, and I've been guilty of this, hopefully a long time ago, <laughs> is to talk about sin generically. Like, like a term like brokenness or we all do stuff that we regret. To come to Jesus merely means ex expressing that you've done something that you regret. You've done things in your past that you regret. Don't worry, God forgives your sins. Or you're broken and Jesus is here to make you whole. But the law of God never treats us that way. It's way more painful than that. 
comes at us and names specific sins. That is adultery. That is murder. That is worshiping a false god. Um, that is sexual sin. It names the sin and calls for, in fact, it demands repentance and offers forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Which means living as a Christian who's called and commanded and hopefully genuinely loves your lost neighbor or coworker. It's really hard right now. Like, like I, grew, I grew up in a context where um, people are, I grew up in Texas, right? So everybody went to church in Texas. Doesn't mean they're all Christians, but they all went to church. So you grew up in a place like Texas, and when you, as soon as you name sin, everybody knows exactly what you're talking about and actually feels guilty about it already. Like they were in that Sunday school class with that weird Sunday school teacher with the mole who was really mean to them. And now they still feel guilt about their sin. And now you get to come and point out that guilt and then offer forgiveness in Jesus. But we live in a day and age in which actually claiming that there is an objective thing called sin, like other than racism, is anathema in our day. But you should want people to be saved. You should want them to know God. You should want them to be free of their sins. Which means you have to bring the law of God to bear on those that God gives you influence with. Do you see this like really hard spot we're in? To like call people to repent of their sin and be reconciled to God. That's one of the things that the law is for. It's the first use of the law. Second use of the law is to restrain evil. And so um, one of the things that we're going to get into in just a minute um, is this law, this Ten Commandments. Um, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this principle that kind of, what we would say kind of lies underneath the Ten Commandments. Um, it's natural law. C.S. Lewis talks about it in Abolition of Man as the Tao, or the Tao, sorry. Um, it's T-A-O, but it's pronounced Tao. Um, it is this fundamental moral um, that there is hardwired into the nature of the world Morality. In other words, morality is not something that's superimposed by a culture on, the, on just kind of this blank canvas of the universe, but rather the, the world's actually been designed um, with, with a particular angle to it, a particular uh, grain to it. Um, and the Ten Commandments are the biblical revelation or expression of how God has designed the world morally which is different than how we've been taught to think about morality, right? It's different than how we've been taught to think about the law. But what the Bible says is that God actually designed the world and designed the world in a particular way. And not just in the sense that the earth goes around the sun, but also in the sense that there are certain things that are destructive to the formation of humanity in the world that God has designed um, that are just inherently bad not arbitrarily placed upon the world by mankind or by societies or by governments, but actually a way that the world works. Um, If you think about it with a brisket, I remember my very first brisket I ever smoked, I cut with the grain and ruined the brisket. It was a rookie move. I should have watched one more YouTube video. Um, Violating the Tao or violating the Ten Commandments or violating God's natural law and I'm seeing all three of those things as the same thing, is to cut with the grain. 
which sounds weird to me because that sounds like what you should do, but you're not supposed to. You're supposed to cut against the grain when you cut your brisket. Um, so it, it, it is, in other words, to, to rebel against or to kick against the very design of everything that God has made. Um, and so to get to the second use of the law, um, that Tao, that, that, um, the, the, the founders of the, of the United States call it nature's law, um, that law is meant to be put in place, to be implemented on, in societies applied in particular times, particular places, particular cultures, in such that a, a, a way that it restrains evil. So it can restrain evil. It can't give you a new heart. It can't make you love God. It can't make you love your neighbor. It can't make you desire to do the right thing. But appropriate authorities can put it in place to limit the destruction that comes in a family, to limit the destruction that comes in a society. So that's the second use of the law. It is there um, as a revelation of the nature of the universe, the nature of morality such that evil can be restrained. Third use, um, and this is, this is one I want us to emphasize um, tonight, is it teaches us how to love. So Jesus sums up the law as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, that's him saying, hey, if you want a one-sentence summary of the first um, four commands, that's it. So what are the first four commands about? They teach you how to love God. What does the love of God look like? Let me say the second is likened to it. Let, let, um, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, if you want to know what the second tablet of the law or the last six commands of the law are about, they're fundamentally about how do you love your neighbor. If you want to know how you love your neighbor, you obey the, six, the, 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 the final six commands in the law of God. So they, they, not only do they restrain evil, not only they confront us with the reality and the horror of sin, they actually instruct, instruct us on how we ought to love, which means, fathers, if you want to teach your sons how to love, you have to go to the law of God. If you want to teach your sons how to love God, you have to go to the law of God. If you want to build a culture in your home grounded upon the gospel, you have to go to the law of God. If you want to learn how to love your neighbors and how do we think about legislation that's loving or not unloving, you have to go to the law of God. This is where we learn how to love, which is hilarious to me. Like, we're so bad at understanding what, what doing really simple things like loving our neighbor is, is that God had to give us a command like don't steal. <laughs> think about that. That's like how bad at being human we are. <laughs> Basic to being human would be, hey, you live in a society, and in that society you love your neighbor. And Sean, you have no idea how to do that because you're particularly dense. <clears throat> and as a Marine, let me just tell you, first step, step one, how to love your neighbor, don't take their stuff. <laughs> so, so, so this is um, it, this is the third use of the law. Uh, if we want to learn how to live in the society, in the world that God has made in accordance with how God has designed it, um, we're going to go to the law and seek to obey the law and apply the law. Um, and, and that goes all the way down to you as an individual. Then here's the crazy, controversial 
like Christian nationalist thing I'm going to say. If you want to know how to build a society that's marked by love, if you want to know how to build a society that's marked by um, the kind of order and flourishing um, that, that leads to a healthy, vibrant, creative, good society, you have to go to the law of God. That's like the craziest thing I'll say all night. Is it pretty crazy? Like, one of the things that I think, one of the things you learn from the law of God as you begin to think about that is goodness and mercy and flourishing and life can't be manufactured through laws. Think about that. Like, you can't, like, what, you can't, like, govern a people into flourishing. This is the fundamental flaw in communism. You can't, like, manufacture righteousness. You can't manufacture um, uh, joy. You can't manufacture love. What you can do is say, here are the bounds within which love flourishes. Here's the bounds in which righteousness flourishes. And if you want to learn how to love, go to the law of God and think through, um, how do we build laws that don't steal? Like, I mean, thinking back to last week's sermon. Like Samuel's like warning the people, things are going to get really dark and tyrannical. He's going to take 10% from you. Like we would die to get to 10%. Like flat tax 10%, that'd be awesome. But, but for, for Samuel, like, like there, there is this impulse to build laws that somehow manufacture righteousness um, rather than actually saying like, no, like we can't manufacture it. Um, we, we rely on the law of God and what we find in the law of God um, is like one of the key ways to love your neighbor is like, like be nice to them and leave them alone. Like don't take their stuff. Don't envy them. Don't like look at their cat and think, man, I wish I had a cat like that cat instead of my dog that barks all the time. That's actually my neighbor. My neighbor has a sweet cat. It's awesome. And every time I go out to try to pet it, it meows and it looks at me and meows and walks away. Um, so, so like that's that's the, the third use of the law. Um, as we think about as you read um, the Bible, as you come across commands, um, traditionally the Reformed tradition has broken up those commands um, into three categories: um, the moral law or the natural law. Um, which is essentially summarized in the Ten Commandments and then spelled out or explained um, in different places throughout the Bible. Um, the second is the ceremonial law. Um, ceremonial law has to do with, as a repercussion of sin, how do we then approach God? How are we made clean? How are we washed of our guilt and our shame and therefore made able to um, enter the presence of God? So. Um, Leviticus is filled with that ceremonial law. Um, and then last is judicial law. So how do we take the moral law, how do we take the commands of God, and then structure laws in society? So how, how neighbors relate, how this, how this institution called slavery, which pre-existed the law, how do we manage that, how do we deal with that? Um, how do we approach society? How do we build laws for society that are faithful applications of the moral and natural law? And those are the three categories. And, and Jesus comes and fulfills all of it. And, and he is the end of the ceremonial law. In other words, Jesus completes, fulfills um, the ceremonial law. Jesus, in other words, you don't have to sacrifice a goat 
to come into the church building on a Sunday. And think about that. For centuries to gather in the presence of God, you had to kill something. Like, you're that bad. Like, something has to die for you to, to stay in the presence of God and not die. So we have to, we have to shed blood. That's all over because of Jesus. Jesus comes and fulfills, completes um, uh, the ceremonial law we find out in Hebrews. Ceremonial law, ceremonial law was types and shadows. It was kind of hints or echoes at what Jesus would come and be. Um, and so uh, as you think about, so, so what I want us to primarily think about um, as you think about your home, as you think about your children, as you think about the society we live in is um, we want to be parents or leaders or those bearing authority who relying completely on the moral law of God seek to extend that and apply that in particular situations wherever we have authority. And that's what you have in the judicial law. Um, so is it a parapet? What's the little, it's called a railing. <clears throat> so one example is uh, in the law of God, you're, if you have a roof on your house, you have to put a railing on the roof of your house. Extension of the moral law, way of loving your neighbor. You go over your house, you put a railing up there because if they have one too many wineskins of wine, there's a good chance they're going to fall off your roof. Or if you're letting them be honored and sleep on the roof of your house, they might roll off if there's no railing. Um, so make sure you have a railing on the roof of your house. But um, you, you would, mo- most of us don't have flat roofs. I guess, James, you have a flat roof. You should have a railing on your roof so that people don't fall off. But, like, if you're on my roof, I, you should fall off because you shouldn't be on my roof. It's very steep, it's slippery. Um, and, but, but do you see, like, how the, the, the law about a railing in your roof was written to a time and a people that had flat roofed houses. You spend a lot of time on the roof of your house because it gets hot. You want to be on the roof, particularly at night. It's the best place to sleep in that society. So you want a railing. Because, like, what if your uncle's son, like, sleepwalks? Wakes up in the middle of the night, there's no railing, falls down, you wake up, he's dead. Really bad night, you're a really bad uncle. And so, um, <clears throat> so as we think about our homes, one of the things that we should be doing in the laws that you create in your home, in, in the way that you structure your business, as we think about, even as we think about um, the kind of government legislation that we would want and not want, is they must be derived or reliant on applying things like the moral law to our homes um, and to our lives. Um, So uh, that's kind of how the three kinds of law works. And so when you go to the Ten Commandments, what you find in the Ten Commandments is this is moral law. This is how God's designed the world. You should not make your people work seven days a week. And not for like Chick-fil-A's reasons necessarily, but because like that's actually not how they were made to be. Like it's not going to work very well. They, they're supposed to have a day off, a day of rest. Like that's how that works. That's why it's in the Ten Commandments. Um, not only is it a day that they sh- it should be given to the worship of God, um, you don't get to like make people worship God, but like you shouldn't have people working seven days a week for you. Like nonstop. They need rest. There needs to be breaks. There needs, like, that's if you want to rule wisely, you're going to build into your home and into your marriage um, rhythms of rest 
not just as like a pietistic check the box, there's this weird command in the Bible about having a Sabbath day, but actually because we trust God and we say that God's designed the world to work better when it's designed this, when it's done this way. Okay? That's how that works. <clears throat> Third level. Um, so this uh, last kind of theological term, <coughs> there is within the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, kind of the, the, it's the confession of faith that kind of sets the parameters for our elders and our teaching. Um, it's kind of just the old main, mainstay confession um, within Reformed and Presbyterian circles. Um, um, essentially, ex- essentially sets out a thing called uh, the general equity of the law. So, so um, when you look at the judicial law, or the ser- um, particularly the judicial law, um, it says that the judicial law has been abrogated. It's, it's, it's not a thing that we're supposed to obey, except in, um, insofar as the general equity of it requires. So what does that mean? It means um, that you... You sh- when you read about putting a railing on the roof of your house, you shouldn't become this weird legalist who then puts a railing around the roof of your house. Unless you're James. James, you should have a railing around the roof of your house. Um, because uh, nobody ever goes on your roof. Like You should understand the, the general equity, the principle that's at play in putting the railing around your house. Does that make sense? Um, and so uh, when we think about how to create rules and, and define morality in our homes and define morality with our children. It should be in terms of the law of God. And I would say this, you should be able to connect rules that you have in your home to the things that God commands. You should not have arbitrarily made up rules in your home. They should be connected to the law of God, the commands of God. Does that make sense? So, so if, um, if I tell my son, not now, I mean, he would never do it now. His heart is new and renewed. Uh, but let's say he's seven and he found a stick, which immediately becomes a sword. And it was better when they became guns because it wasn't immediately physically harmful. Uh, but back when they were swords and Molly becomes the dragon <clears throat> and he begins to whack the dragon kill the dragon, which is good. We've taught him the story of the Bible um, is to save the girl, kill the dragon. Um, I don't want to just say don't hit your sister. I want to say don't hit your sister because this is what God has made you to be um, in light of his word. This is how God has designed you to be. He hasn't made you to kill your sister. And frankly, your sister is not a dragon. She's the one you should save through the dragon. You want to connect the rules that you bring to bear on your children to your authority, who is God. How do you do that? You go to his word, and you ground your rules in your home. You ground your morality. You ground your discipline. You ground the direction you're you're taking your family in what God has actually said. Like, ultimately, I'm going to keep going to Justin because he's up front, and he runs a business. Um, and I kind of know how his business works, but truth be told, I don't really know how his business works. Um, like, at the end of the day, everyone should know who works for Justin. Like, we don't, we don't lie or, or, or cheat on our, time, on our uh, 
I have no idea how your business works, but on our bills that we send, send to our clients on how much the wood costs that we had to use to build their house. We don't lie on that. Because I'm under authority and we don't steal. And stealing is wrong and it's wrong because God says it's wrong. Does that make sense? Like my authority as I run my business is, hey, I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't murder. I bury people in the concrete and the foundation of, my, of the homes I'm building. I don't do any of that stuff. And the reason I don't do it is because I'm submitted to God. And God's told me how to run a business in a particular way. Um, but, but those things are tied together intimately as we think about our homes, as we think about the authority that God's given us. Okay. We worked through this handout. Are there any questions about this? And then we're going to jump into a pretty short kind of application, like I'm trying to do some running application, but, but some uh, specific applications of this to your home. Any questions at all about how to think about the law? I know that got kind of theological. Yeah. Um, I think wisdom literature is um, learning how to live in light of the law well in specific situations. So I don't think it's unrelated from the law. I think it's explaining how the world works in, um, in, specific, in specific situations. So it's, it's, a, it's taking the Tao or taking the, the natural law or taking the Ten Commandments or the way that God's designed the world and teaching you how to live in line with it in pretty specific situations. When to step into a fight and when not to step into a fight. Don't grab a dog by its ears. Um, those kind of things. Yeah. I think it does. Why do you think it does? That's like a massive question in the history of <laughs> um, I think for most, for most of us, like faithfulness to Jesus, I'll just give my own experience. There, there were a handful of moral issues that really mattered, right? Um, I'm just thinking of the church I grew up in. So don't have sex with your girlfriend. It was a really big deal. Sexual sins, sexual morality was a really big deal. Um, and don't be drunk with wine was a really big deal. Um, but like there was no, um, I mean, I, I, when I came upon kind of Rush Juni and some other kind of later reformed authors and saw them start to do work with the law of God, I felt cheated. Like there's so much wisdom and glory and beauty here. Like you go to a place like 2 Corinthians 3.18, where it's literally in the context of, of Paul talking about when the law of Moses is read um, in the Old Covenant, a veil remains so that they would hear the law of God and not see what was there. But in Jesus, he says what happens is the law of God is read and the veil is removed and we see the glory of Jesus Christ in the law of God. I don't just think that means we see the, the way that we're justified and made right with God. I think it's actually like you begin to see the law and you begin to, begin to grasp how wise and how glorious and how good God is as the lawgiver. Like you see him as good and wise and glorious. And like I didn't get any of that. What I got was like, hey, here's some like arbitrarily applied morality. Um, and the, the real test of your faith is how do you feel? Do you have enough like emotional like bubbles? And if you have enough emotional bubbles, and that's proof and evidence of your faith and you're a good Christian, and that will drive you to do this really weirdly and narrow 
kind of set of morals. So you, you feel happy beads of passion and faith. And then you read your Bible some and you pray some and you don't have sex with your girlfriend. And that's what makes a good Christian. Well, then you, you, you actually design, there was whole, like, whole patterns of kind of discipleship that we've seen in churches that are essentially designed around like, how do we cultivate good feelings in people so that they know they're good Christians? Rather than going like, no, like God's given us like really clear objective standards that are meant to grow out of faith in Jesus Christ. So that's my guess. It's like at some point we kind of bought into this therapeutic culture where faithfulness or a good relationship with God is not defined with anything objective. It's defined by bubbly feelings in your heart. And I'm all, I love bubbly feelings in my heart. Um, but I certainly wouldn't want to measure, <laughs> measure my faith based on the bubbly feelings in my heart. Because sometimes I eat too much pizza. And that gives me bubbly feelings in my heart. <laughs> Yeah. I would I would even go by beyond the Torah. So I would say we have um, application of or extensions of the moral law and the teachings of Jesus in Matthew five, for instance. Um, I think we have the same thing in saying. The second, the last third of like everything Paul wrote is, I think, ultimately just extensions of or applications of the law to this new situation in the church. So, so that would go there. But I wouldn't want to import. I think one of the things that we've done is we've imported into the Bible, into the law, kind of our own moral codes. We've added, we've been like the Pharisees and added to the law of God over and over and over again. So when like a book like Genesis, for instance, it doesn't have any explicit law code. Not necessarily the in explication of the law, but itself being thought of as law. Yeah, preamble. <laughs> like, um, I mean that's why I, I think you have you know the creation of God, the covenant promises of God given to a people, um, that's all relevant to understanding the context of the moral the moral law as God delivers it explicitly to a people, even though I think it's already hardwired in the universe before they ever show up. I also think like even, the, even Exodus 20 um, it begins with this reminder to them that I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the God who saved you. Um, even they're teaching us how to, how to listen to the law. We listen to the law as a people who've been brought out of Egypt. We listen to the law as a people who've been saved. We listen to these commands as, as a people who've been adopted into a family who belong to our father. Which again goes back to the earlier statement for fathers in this, in this room. Like, your kids should not hear your commands, um, your rules, your laws that are established in your home as a condition of your love, but as the fruit of it. Um, that's how God gives the law to us. And it's how he's always given the law to us. So yeah, that's, that, I would say it that way. You guys are, aren't really rowdy tonight. I'm feeling rowdy. Okay, a couple points of application, and then we'll be done. We'll sing a song, and then we'll be done. Lucas will lead us in a song, and then we'll be done. <clears throat> All right, a couple points of application. One, Jesus is the king. Always. 
Um, you don't get to make arbitrary rules in your home that suit you. Like, your son has to make you a sandwich every day at noon. It has to be grilled just so. Um, that is a rule established in your home. Um, because you are not allowed to overextend the authority that God has given you in your role as a father or a husband. Um, and, and, and to do so is the technical definition of tyranny. Um, and so even as we think politically about, say, the events of 2020 um, and 2021 and whatever comes next, um, God has given real authority to the magistrate, to the government. And for them to go beyond the authority they've actually been given is the definition of tyranny. So I saw online all the time people were calling you know, the vaccine mandates and all this stuff tyranny. Um, and, and then other people would come and make fun of them and say, well, that's not tyranny. They're not like stabbing you or like beating you with electric rods. Um, I like to think of really terrible things. Um, this isn't really ty- tyranny. It was like, no, you've actually missed the point. Tyranny is any time an authority goes beyond the scope of the authority that's been given to them. And so you have been given real authority by God as a father and a husband and in your workplace. Do not be a tyrant because you answer to a king. Your authority is derived. Um, um, And you also cannot be passive. You actually have to lead. And the beauty of it is that God, in the law of God, um, and his explanations of the law of God, you have a whole book of explanation of what this law looks like and how it manifests itself and how it's fulfilled. He's given you um, not a ladder to climb up to God, uh, but, but this is a really kind of cheesy shift, but... If you lay a ladder down, what does it turn into? It turns into railroad tracks. He's giving you rails on which to run, on which to run your business, on which to run your family, on which to, on which to run a society, on um, which to run a, mar- to run a marriage, in which you can, um, it guides you in the path of pursuing righteousness and fruitfulness. <clears throat> and so don't go beyond that. Don't go beyond what God has said, creating arbitrary rules that aren't grounded in what God has actually spoken. So that's the first thing. Um, I would plead with you over and over and over again. Jesus Christ is Lord, is the foundational confession of God's people. And that, that's important to remember from the New Testament. The people of God are the ones who confess, who shout, who sing, Jesus is Lord. Second, the foundation of all obedience has to be repentance and faith. For your obedience, for your children's obedience, um, for, to, for it to be fruitful, it grows out of the soil of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. Fathers, husbands, like, model this. Business owners, model this. Be the first one to say, I'm sorry. Be the first one to find your actual sins and confess them. Um... Let that be modeled in your home. Let, be the, let, let that be the culture of your home. Um, Dad says he's sorry. I, I mean, that's one of, my, one of Jenny and I's prayers from the very, very beginning as we began to raise our kids. Was that they, they would know and have memories of me getting on my knees and saying, I'm sorry. I sinned against you and I sinned against God. I wanted my wife to have memories of me getting on my knees and saying, I'm sorry. I sinned against you and I sinned against God. That models for everybody involved, if the, if the, if the person that God has put in charge, um, is, his whole authority is grounded in the fact 
that he needs, he, needs, he needs the forgiveness of sins from his Savior, and all obedience is going to flow from that. Um, that sets the right kind of culture around obedience in your home. Um, and I want to talk about two different kinds of errors, which are interestingly related. The first is pietistic errors, in which we take... Um, it's, this is an error committed by Christians... Where we take the law of God and then we add to it, we heap up on it things that we think, well, Christians ought to be like that. In other words, we add commands to the law of God. We, um, I, I mean, I see this all the time um, in relation specifically. Actually, this is the one that jumps to my mind. But specifically with regards to Doug Wilson. So all the time he gets criticized as speaking in unchristian ways. And you go, what does that mean? What does it mean to speak in unchristian ways? And it's always like saying, well, you can't, you can't use satire. You can't make fun of these people. Um, you can't make fun of this idea. You can't do these things. Um, and, and then you actually take them to places in the Bible where it's actually, like that, that's actually modeled for us by the prophets. Um, and, and, and yet there's extra laws imposed upon Christians to say, that this is what Christians must do. Um, I remember at Wheaton College, I mean, it drove me insane because people wouldn't just pray before lunch. They made a scene of praying before lunch. It was a Christian school. Um, you wanted the girls to notice you, to like you, think you were particularly pious. So you would push your belly, sit down, and you would put your hands on the table like this, and you would pray. Um, but it was like this extra set of commands. People talk all the time about how early they got up that morning for their quiet time because the quiet time was was another an addition, constant addition to the law of God. And if you didn't do your quiet time, or um, as the football table tended to do, we didn't, we all kind of sat down different times, we didn't all have our big prayer, moment of prayer at the football tables. Um, it was like, there was like this, you're somehow less Christian, you're less faithful to God um, because you're not obeying these kind of pietistic laws um, that we tend to add to um, the law of God. The other thing is, Every society will have a morality. Every society will have a moral code, a moral law. If they've rejected the God of the Bible, they'll make up their own. And it will not be a law of liberty. <laughs> and, and here's the, the strange thing that I've, we've watched Christians do over and over again over the last two years. is um, I, I would say our society actually is about as moralistic as any society in history, which is weird to say, right? Because it's one of the most sexually promiscuous societies in all of history. Um, gender norms have like completely thrown out the window. Um, like if you look at our society, you wouldn't necessarily look at the behavior and be like, oh, this is a moralistic society. But think about it. There is a, like all the way down moral code. Um, there is an absolute assertion of what's right and what's wrong. Who's justified and who's not justified. In our society. I mean, we just went through COVID and it expressed itself in, in really, really odd ways based on did you wear a mask at the airport or did you not wear a mask at the airport? That actually became a moral code at the heart of society. It was really, really strange. Unless you say, well, it wasn't a moral code, it's like a health thing. Like, that's not what the signs at the airport said. They said, be a good person, wear a mask. It didn't say, like, hey, remember the health code, it's probably a good idea to wear a mask. So no, be good, wear a mask. You think about um, what's gone on in, in 
in the culture around issues of racism, issues around um, uh, just even critical theory in terms of how this group relates to this group, um, this sexual minority over here um, compared to, say, white middle-class men, Christian men over here. Like all of those things are simply moral codes that, that are kind of being, um, when you reject the law of God, his moral code, when you reject kind of his separation of the world in terms of the righteous and the unrighteous according to his law, it's not that you, you get kind of a free-for-all where everyone's like non-judgmental and happy. You just get, you get severe judgments. You get the same line between righteous and unrighteous. You just get it applied in really, really strange, weird, and frankly oppressive ways. And one of the weird things that Christians have done in the last few years is um, because we have, this, um, we have this framework and we see the world have this framework, we start adopting that framework and kind of try to make it kind of mash and mix with um, this Christian framework. So righteousness has to do with like what God says in his law and whatever the culture is saying over here. And we find ourselves evaluating brothers and sisters on the basis of like, were they at the BLM rally um, or did they wear a mask at the grocery store or were they one of those rebellious people who doesn't love their neighbor and refuse to wear their mask? Or, maybe more, more often in our church, um, you see the guy walk into church wearing a mask and you think, that idiot. <laughs> I'm better than him. He's like some sort of lemming following the government. Notice we start importing like righteousness tests in really like stupid, can I just say stupid ways that have nothing to do with righteousness and nothing to do with the law of God. And so what I would say to you again, first principle, you are a man under authority. Jesus doesn't divvy up the world like that. You don't get to divvy up the world like that. And no other Christian gets to impose on you divvying up the world like that. And the NFL doesn't get to divvy up the world like that, even though it tries to every single freaking Sunday. Okay, that's third and fourth. Um, and this is like, the last thing I'll mention. We have a little Q&A discussion, other thoughts, time. Um, I, I think like what I would ask you to do is to spend more time reading the law, reading the Old Testament. Um, there is glorious wisdom there to understand the heart of God, to understand the, de- excuse me, that was gross, um, the design of the universe, how God's called you to function and to lead and to bear authority in the world, how God's called you even um, to be um, a bearer of good news to the lost, um, which first requires you bearing bad news to the lost. Like, you have to know the law. And there is so much there. Um, and so, uh, one of the interesting facts is, is that um, God actually designed, and we're getting into the part of First Samuel where they're actually going to have a king. Um, God had designed and, and, and designated in Deuteronomy that when kings took office, guess what the first thing they did was? Hand copy the entire law of God. Which I don't think it's just the Ten Commandments. I think it's the whole, the whole Pentateuch. They're supposed to write the whole thing out. Because that was going to be their, that's their charter that designed the authority that they were to be under. God wanted them to know the law, so they had to copy it. And I'm not saying you should go copy the law, although there would be worse things to do. Um, But I am saying you should stare intently at it, as James says. At the perfect law, the perfect law of liberty. 
to stare at it, and, and it's a terrible translation of the ESV stare. Um, it, meditate on it, think on it, try to understand it. Spend the rest of your days trying to better understand the law of God and then apply it in your home and apply it in your business and apply it to your political thinking and apply, uh, uh, apply it to how you think about the society that we're in. Um, it, it is endlessly fruitful. I mean, if you want books to start with, they kind of help you get there. I've got um, a lot of recommendations. Um, but I am, I am, I have not even begun to exhaust my fascination with what I begin to see in, in, in the law of God. I, I do get bored with and kind of grossed out by the sores and the hairs and stuff. But um, the rest of it, man, it's just, God is so incredibly wise. I did a deep dive just trying to understand the slave code um, that comes out in right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus. And when you actually see what God's designed there, it's unbelievable. Like, it, it's funny, like, people throw, like, well, the old, you know, the, you, can't, you can't believe the Bible because it supports slavery. But it's just like, no, if you actually understood the nature of slavery, um, that, that God, the, the system that God impl- implemented on slavery, it's actually glorious and beautiful and leads to freedom and flourishing. And, and free people, free men, free women. Like, it, it's just endlessly um, beautiful and glorious and, 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 and should cause you to marvel and be marked by wisdom as a husband and a father and a leader. So meditate on the law. Learn as much as you can about it because all of your authority is derived from it. All of it. You don't have any authority apart from the word of God. That is where your authority lies. So understand it, seek to apply it, seek to live under it. And seek to lead, um, seek to lead those you're, you're given authority over to live under that law. And with whatever authority you've actually been given. All right. So I've talked a lot. My voice is going. I'm sorry. Um, and I'm also sorry you had to deal with me again tonight um, instead of Matt and then a little bit of me. It was going to be mostly Matt and then like a, me coming up to make sure he didn't say anything radical or weird. Because um, Matt sometimes says... Not heretical things, but definitely weird things. Um, so that was what you're supposed to get tonight. You'll get that in the spring instead. Um, what questions, what points of application? Um, so if you, if you want to say something in light of that, we'd love to hear it. And then two, if you have any other questions you, you want us to talk about. And then we can. Otherwise, we're going to sing. Yes. to your kid. My, my kid makes the best sandwiches, which I was actually thinking of it because the other day I asked him to make me a sandwich. And after I ate it, I thought, like, I should make him make me a sandwich every day. <laughs> I mean, I have authority here. Like, and he makes way better sandwiches than I do. I should make him make me a sandwich. Um, but I thought that would be charity. Um, but, but I do think, like, um, the, if, like, if Jesus is right, which he always is, um, 
And, and the, the whole direction and aim of the law is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor. Um, then if I'm having my son make me a sandwich every day, because I like his sandwiches, they're amazing. Um, as opposed to, I want him to make his own sandwich or maybe make a sandwich for his sister or maybe make a sandwich for me. Or I want him to get into a certain pattern of self-discipline. Um, that would kind of fall under, I think Proverbs would fall under wisdom as an application of the law um, and would say that's not tyranny necessarily. It could be, but, um, but it, it, it might be like a specific application of like, hey, the goal, I'm seeking his good and having him do this thing every day. Um, and his good is aligned with what the scripture would just define as good. Um, so I'm going to do that. It'll be, it'll be okay. Hayes, we just figured out you have to make me a sandwich every day. <laughs> okay, so talking about politics, um, in regards to the law, um, sorry that I've done this week about, you know, different Christians will just make different decisions on who they vote for, and you can't say that votes somebody else makes would be wrong, um, or that they're not going with the Christian values or not. And it seems like we're coming into more and more of a time where that's more, more divided. Yeah. Um, where you actually could be supporting someone who supports the murder of babies, who supports yeah. stealing funding from other people to help people. So how, how do you navigate those conversations with people who, who don't have familiarity Discipling one another where they're not familiar with, oh, God does speak to those things in relation to how, to how I vote, yeah. how I think about politics. I mean, I, I would, this would be hard for me because I don't like to ask questions. I like to just tell people. Um, but I would love to ask somebody like, hey, what do you, what do you think God's, God's ordained task or role or vocation for the magistrate is? When do you think he has one? Like, does President Biden have a charge given to him by God? Which, if they say no, that's weird because he puts his hand on a Bible and takes a vow before the presence of God. So it seems like God's somehow involved in this deal. Um, and, and then how would you define that? How would you, like, as a Christian, how would you say, what would you say that is? Um, and then it, it actually gets really easy on the abortion issue because it's like, well, if the magistrate does anything, it's to, it's to protect <laughs> justice. <laughs> it's to protect the innocent, the powerful, the the the... the the weak and the poor from the powerful um, and abortion is a complete subversion of that. So it's like the, the most basic kind of negation of the God-given task given to godly rulers. Um, so I, I think like you, one of the things that I think would be helpful for people in our day and age is to begin to think about like, hey, does the Bible actually spell out a role for the magistrate given to them by God? In other words, I think like one of the things that's happened in conservative circles is we've in seeking to diminish the size of government we've diminished the role of government um, and I think that's the opposite solution I think actually we go like no there's actually like governors and um, senators and house representatives and judges are actually given a weighty terrifying vocation by God um, and they better do it well and do it skillfully 
Um, and it's actually spelled out for them pretty clearly in the Bible what they're charged to do and what they're not charged to do. Um, and what you find is it's a pretty small government. Like it's, a pretty, it's a pretty narrow list of things they're charged to do. Um, and what's crazy is we live in, I think, a time and a day and age when like, um, they're doing more and more and they're not doing the basic things that the law of God would demand that they do, like that they do do. That makes sense. Um, I found myself in a similar situation in previous church. It was like we were doing lots and lots and lots of stuff, but then when I looked at like basic definitions of what elders were supposed to do in a church, we weren't doing the basic things that God had told us to do, um, instead doing all this other stuff. And uh, I, I think like that's what government's doing today. It's just doing a whole bunch of other stuff that's not supposed to be doing, um, and it's neglecting the most basic things it's supposed to be doing. <clears throat> so I would like want to build up and go like, Hey, how do I get you to see like God's actually defined and given a charge to, a weighty charge that we're called to honor um, to the magistrate to do certain things? Um, and I don't understand how voting for this person <laughs> is voting for a person who wants to do those things when they're saying we want to do the opposite of those things. Well, that would be places like Samuel, uh, like verses like Samuel. Yeah. Well, First Samuel 10. So Justin's going to preach on First Samuel 10 um, next week, um, which I'm super excited to hear how he does this. But uh, so Samuel, like last week, talked through all the things that a king like the other nations is going to do, which is essentially a complete subversion of what God's made a king to do. Chapter 10, he's actually going to create a charter, uh, a kind of constitution, if you will, to say, here's how the government's supposed to function. Now Samuel, like Saul's going to break that fairly quickly. Um, but Samuel, essentially, um, one of the things we're going to look at this week in Samuel is um, Samuel knows this is going to go terribly. He knows that the motives of the people for doing this is terrible. And he also knows that God's told him to do it and that it's not sin to do it. God actually intended for there to be a king in Israel. <clears throat> and so Samuel sets out to do this thing faithfully, even though he knows it's going to go really poorly. And it's even kind of startling in chapter 10, knowing where the, he knows where this is all going to go. And he still sets out and says, no, here's how the king will govern. Here's, here's the limits on his power. Um, here's how he makes laws, the kinds of laws he's allowed to make and not allowed to make. Um, so that would be one place to go. Uh, Romans 13 would be a, a clear place to go. Um, yeah. What, what a, an interesting study is to go through first thing kings and, and notice the difference between good kings and bad kings. It wasn't all religious. A lot of it had to do with how they governed. Still got that pre-workout of me. Like when you talk about kids and raising kids, kind of looking at like you know, Doug Wilson's parenting books, the idea would be that um, like we should discipline for sin and always discipline for sin and like discipline well, particularly when they're young, you want to be disciplining faithfully um, yeah. for sin.
sin doesn't separate you from God, but it still has consequences. Yeah. Um, I mean, the uh, story Doug told, well, actually Nate told it to me, because um, <laughs> he was always the one that got in trouble. Uh, like, he would like start mouthing off to his sister at the dinner table, and so then he would have to go in the basement and not allowed, not allowed to have, he, he'd broken fellowship with the family, the consequence was he didn't get to enjoy dinner with the family, he had to go sit in the basement. And, um, after a few minutes, his dad come down the stairs, give him a spanking or whatever he needed to, needed to get for what he did. Um, and then say to him, as soon as you're ready to rejoin the family and rejoin fellowship with the family, we want you there. We want you sitting with us. We want you eating with us. We want you conversing with us. So like there was this expression of love, we want you here, but your sin is, is, is dragging you away from this good thing that we want to give you. Um, so I thought it was a beautiful picture of discipline. Like, hey, the sin is driving you from the table, but we want you here. We want you with us. So as soon as you're ready to, like, sit here and treat Rachel well, come back upstairs. I think he said it was always him and Rachel. Um, <laughs> come and uh, come sit with us and feast with us and sing with us and eat dessert with us. Um, like, it was both and at the same time. It was like, hey, you've broken fellowship. There's real consequences to that. Um, Maybe a spanking, maybe you just said go downstairs. Uh, but the desire was expressed and explicit. We love you. We want you to, to enjoy these good things with us. So it's, it's, it's not either or. I think it's both and. And that's another, oh, that could have gone into my list of ways that we, we get this wrong. Is we think it's either like the severity of God's law or the love of God. That's a huge thing in evangelicalism. God just loves you. He doesn't care how you live. He accepts you as you are. Like, you know God loves you way too much to leave you as you are? Like, that would suck if God, like, loved me so... Sorry. Don't say that word. Um, like, that would really be terrible if, like, God, God's love for me meant, like, he left me, like, with all of my baggage and junk and slavery to sin. And I just love you. And all of your gross stuff. It's awesome. Isaiah, bring all your gross... Your gross stuff is just cute to me. It's like, he doesn't do that. He says, I love you despite your gross stuff. And here, let me cut it off of you. Painfully, over the next 50 years of your life. <laughs> but graciously. Because I want you to be free. I want you to walk in the fullness of life and righteousness and goodness and joy. And that's how we should see the law. That's the whole point of the third use of the law. God's not coming hard at us as a disciplinarian saying, Now, <laughs> Now, because I'm your God and you worship Jesus, I get to be mean to you for the rest of your life. Cut you. It's like, no, now. Now you can be free. Now you can know liberty. Now you can know joy. Now you can know what life was meant to be, what a marriage was meant to be, what sexuality is meant to be, what beer and wine and fruitfulness and work is meant to be. Um, and the law kind of spells that out for us. You had your hand up, Yeah. As a doctor. that looked like was I, I, I could tell with a three year old child um, whether or not like there's a real understanding of like oh I did something wrong and I shouldn't have done that wrong or whether there was still this kind of like stiff, stiff necked 
no, I don't like you, God, thing. Um, and it was like, as long as that stiff neck was there, no. Like, I want you to recognize you did this wrong. You shouldn't treat your sister, your sister, because there's two girls, maybe one of the girls. <laughs> you shouldn't treat your sister this way. Um, um, once you recognize it, come on. I love you. I want you here. The table's less fun when you're not here. Way less fun when you're not here. But the thing was, is like, the thing I want everybody to get from that is like, um, I never want, wanted my kids and still don't want my kids. Um, now I would say in the teenage years, it's moved more into issues of wisdom. And there's some issues of morality, but um, a lot of it is like, I would say 90% of our discipline as, a, as parents as a teenager has to do with issues, of pro- like issues that arise out of Proverbs. Um, but what we've said all along is like we always tethered stuff to we don't do this because God has said this. We don't do this because God has said this. I never wanted them to think like the rules that we had were arbitrary. Somebody raise your hand. Yeah. So I, I like the simplicity of the structure that was laid out with your role is. Um, again, I started to struggle in my let's see, kind of like teenagers in your neighborhood that are not getting good instruction and they're just left their own device and doing bad things. Yeah. And you have enough time to step in, but it's like it's always awkward, it's always weird. Yeah. Plus, I'm sorry. But like, how do you. No. Really? How, <laughs> how do you step into that? I think you have to always understand your authority, right? So if I'm speaking to somebody who's not my kid, um, <coughs> um, I'm not speaking as a father, but so, so I'm coming more to them with warning. I'm coming more to them with like caution. Same way that like it's a kid, so that there's a different different thing going on there. But the same thing with my neighbors. Like I have two gay neighbors. I don't have God hasn't given me authority to like walk in their house every night and go like, you guys cannot have sex. None of this sex stuff. It's gross. Like, he hasn't given me that authority, right? But he has given me authority to like, he's actually charged me to like warn them, charged me to like love them. Um, we, we exchange cookies usually at Christmas. Um, I don't bake the cookies because I'm not very good at it. Their cookies are always way better than our cookies because they're like fancy. and They're amazing. I actually don't want to bring one. I'm going to save one after Christmas so you guys can see these cookies. They're astounding. Um, they're like... This is a surgeon. <laughs> you imagine he's like about to go in and do some work on your wrist. Oh, shoot! <laughs> um, like, I, I don't have... I don't have like... God-given authority to dictate to them what they can do or can't do. What I can do is warn them. What I can do is try to teach them. What I can do is try to steer them. Um, So it's just a different kind of authority. And I would say that's the same. It's similar, actually, I think, to like as your kids get older, your authority changes. Right? Like there's, there's a point at which like you never stop being a father, but your authority is different with your 22 year old son. <clears throat> than it is with your 12-year-old son. So if my 22-year-old son, heaven, for, heaven forbid, but like if he decides to do something really stupid, the authority I have there is to, to hold out to him the word of God. But like I'm no longer the head of his household. Unless he's living in my house, then 
he's still in my household. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's the same with the kid on the street. Who's your neighbor? It's like, I can steer him, I can direct him. He has a like-minded father. Like, go to their dad and say, hey, like, I see him do this, and I'm concerned for him. Um, 